This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Good evening. Good evening. And... Welcome to this first day of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And if it's your first event of the day, you've missed a heck of a lot of good stuff already. It's been amazing. But my name's Nick Barley, and I'm the director, director of this festival, and I'm really thrilled to introduce you to this, uh, the third session in a series which has been selected by DeRay McKesson. The theme of the festival this year, as I think you know, is we need new stories. And what we mean by that is that we need to look at the world in, in a fresh way. We need to find new ways of understanding what's going on. And who better to help us with that than DeRay McKesson, who came to my attention last year when I heard he was writing a book, and I learnt that he had left his job as a school teacher to join in the protests against the killing of a young teenager in Ferguson. And he stayed for 400 days as a protester. And his actions led to the creation of the Black Lives Matter movement. So as one of the co-founders of that extraordinary movement, somebody who's changed the narrative, who's changed the story around people of color and African-Americans, I would like you to welcome to the stage Casey Gerald and DeRay McKesson. It is great to be here today. It's great to be here with Casey. I know Casey, and it's good to talk about his book, which is a great book. There will be no miracles here. Casey, welcome. Hi. <laughs> thank you for having me, and thank you for... DeRay has worked so hard today, I think, from what I, I understand. Think, see? Shady, shady. But no, seriously, it's so good to be with friends wherever you can be with friends. And uh, I know yesterday was a very heavy day for you and for so many people, the fifth anniversary of Mike Brown's <clears throat> murder and what you have done. Duran and I, in 2015, we had no money. We were sort of sitting in my apartment in New York sharing crackers and you know, bags of grapes. So um, it's beautiful to be with you, and thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start with um, the title of your book, which actually has a special relationship to Scotland. That's right. Y'all, I've been so weepy almost all day. I, uh, years and years ago... I was Not six... because of the rain. No, I love the rain. I lived in Los Angeles for a year up until a couple weeks ago, and I never saw rain hardly, so it was good to be reminded of the, <laughs> of the other possibilities in the world. Um, this title, I saw it years and years ago. I was in 2013, and I just saw it on Tumblr. An artist, Nathan Coley, a great artist here in Edinburgh. And I just put it on my phone, and years passed, and then I saw the story behind it that he talked about. And it was a story, uh, an apocryphal story, from a medieval village in France where the peasants uh, sort of started experiencing what they called miracles but what we might call uh, sort of mass hysteria, and they stopped working. They put down their plows, and obviously this pissed everybody in charge off. So they started trying to convince the peasants to get back to work to no avail. 
So finally, uh, the authorities went to the king of France for help, and the king's solution was to have a sign placed in the village square that said, there will be no miracles here by order of the king. <laughs> and I just thought that was so delicious. And some years passed, and I got to the end of the road. I was 27, 28 or so, and I had accomplished about everything a kid in America is supposed to achieve. I had gone from this little poor, queer, damn near orphan in Oak Cliff, Texas, and gone off to Yale and Harvard and you know, Wall Street and Washington, et cetera, et cetera. I'd done a TED Talk, had been on the cover of the magazine. But boy, I was cracked up. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I was having a nervous breakdown, but I wasn't too far off. And I was awful sad either way. And a lot of my friends who had also gone on this journey, uh, these sort of Horatio Alger journeys, they were also very cracked up. And obviously, the world in 2016 was incredibly cracked up, at least in America. And so I set out with this book just to trace those cracks with words. And uh, not long after I started, one of my closest friends from Yale, who had you know, also been one of these sort of pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap symbols, except from St. Louis, where obviously you spent a lot of time in the last five years. Uh, he took his own life. And he was like a little brother to me, and I felt uh, such guilt in a way, in part, because I'd helped recruit him, and I had been in some ways his mentor. And I was in the middle of writing the book, and he came to me in a dream, and I just transcribed the dream in the book for those of you who haven't read it. Hopefully nobody here has not read this book. Uh, and he was sitting in a booth in a diner, and he leaned back, and he smiled, and he said, you know, Casey, we did a lot of things that we wouldn't advise anybody we love to do. And then I woke up, but I knew exactly what he meant. I knew that if you check it, and look at it from the right angle. A kid picking themselves up by their bootstraps looks just like a suicide. I knew that the way that so many people in my generation have been taught to live, to succeed, to envision our lives was actually a dead end. And so I felt that this book was actually ought to be told from the perspective of the peasants who said, fuck it, this is not working for us anymore. And I think whether it's what uh, so many people in our generation from the perspective of, of, of protest and resistance have done or what others, uh, and perhaps I represent this more closely, have represented in simply putting down our plows and refusing the sort of bargains that we've been offered as young people. I think we do find ourselves in the same moment, a very similar moment as those peasants. And I will say, and I have a great section here about my, a dinner I had with George W. Bush and other people like him, uh, you know, I will say that the kings are still doing the same thing. They're still saying this same old shit, you know, uh, get back to work. What you're asking for is unreasonable. And uh, the king of France, as far as I checked, is not here anymore, so I think we're, I think we're in good shape. Yeah. I know anti-France jokes will be good here, so I'll, <laughs> I've got three or four more whenever. Casey, can you turn to 313? You know, because I know Casey, I can put him on the spot like this. Can you, you talked about Elijah, um, and on 313, you tell this story about Lot's wife. Mm. It's this refrain of remember Lot's wife. Now, what I'll tell you, so the book is titled, There Will Be No Miracles Here. One of the reasons why I wanted Casey to come and talk is that the book is actually very hopeful. It is this story that is like, 
uh, these narratives of things that he has learned, and then there's a lesson at the end, sort of, of most of the chapters. And at the end of this chapter, uh, there's a lesson about Elijah before we know he took his life. Casey didn't think I read his book, by the way. Well, I knew you didn't read it until you were required by professional standards to read the book. But that's love. You know, love is so real that it can it can survive betrayals and everything everything else. I'm just here to help his light shine. So take us to 313. I would love sure. to, I, I loved um, this refrain of remember Lot's wife, I say. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, remember Lot's wife, I say. Jesus said it for, first in the Gospel of Luke to his disciples. Remember Lot's wife. Lot, in case you haven't read the Bible recently, was a man who set his family down in Sodom in the midst of a wicked society that God had to destroy. But God, being cruel yet still a sap in part, rushed two angels out to Sodom to warn Lot to gather his folks and get out of Dodge. Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Lot heard the angels' warning, but delayed. The angels didn't have all day to wait, so they grabbed his hand and his two daughters' hands and his wife's hands and hurried them out of Sodom. And the angels shout, escape to the mountain. Whatever you do, don't look back. Just as God starts raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah. I can't figure out how Gomorrah got dragged into this. Brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Lot and his folks are running, fleeing all that destruction, kicking up dust while the Lord rains down death. But then, for some reason, Lot's wife looks back. God turns her into a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. But I've got a question, Lord. Why did she look back? Did she look back because she didn't want to miss the mayhem, wanted one last glimpse of a city on fire? Did she look back to make sure her people were far enough away from danger to breathe a little easy? I'm so nosy and selfish sometimes that those would have likely been my reasons. But what if something else was going on with this woman, Lot's wife? What if she looked back because she knew some of those dead and dying people? What if she could not bear the thought of leaving them all alone to burn alive, even for righteousness' sake? Isn't that possible? If it is, then the backward glance of this disobedient woman, this act that we are told to remember, may not be a cautionary tale after all. It may be the bravest act in all the Bible, even braver than the act that holds the whole book together, the crucifixion. We are told that up on Golgotha, on an old rugged cross, Jesus gave his life to save everybody, billions and billions of strangers for all time to come. That's a nice thing to do. Made him famous, that's for sure. But Lot's wife was killed, turned into a pillar of salt, all because she could not turn away from her friends, the wicked men of Sodom. And nobody even wrote the woman's name down. Oh, to have the courage of Lot's wife. How, did, how do you think about that part when you think about the friend, uh, the way Elijah changed the way that you think and thought about friendship? Mm. It changed the way I thought about life and friendship, and it also changed the way I thought about stories. 
Um, on the life and friendship part, I'll make it very simple. Ian Forster has this fantastic essay, This I Believe. And he says, if ever I have to choose between my, uh, my friend and my country, I hope I have the guts to choose my friend. And he talks about hating the idea of causes. And so I say, um, I was a big cause person for a very long time. I thought you were supposed to devote your life to causes at all costs. And if your friends couldn't get with the program, then they just had to be casualties in a way. One of the reasons DeRay and I get along so well is that I used to also be a demagogue. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> what do you you can't take him nowhere. You can't take him to another country. <laughs> can't take him. I hate manga, you see. Mm. But what I learned is that your friend is your cause. And... Elijah and I built an organization together when we were in college, and I go back now every year, and it's one of the most successful organizations on campus. And I tell those kids when I go that I would exchange everything they've done in the last 12 years to get my friend back. There's no question. That's one. The other part is about stories. Elijah and I were held up as these kind of American dream Symbols. When I first got into college, they put posters in every school in DISD in Dallas Independent School District. It said, look who's going to Yale. He did it. You can too. And so much of what I had to do with this book was inspired in part by my grandfather who was a preacher. And a preacher has a very hard job. They've got to take a 2,000-year-old story and tell it over and over and over again and keep people from walking out on them. You know, that takes inc incredible creativity. And what I wanted to do was try to take all the stories we've been given and just kind of look, look underneath the, if the story is the rock, what if you picked the rock up and saw where the little worms and stuff were, the story that hadn't been told. And there were so many stories that seemed ossified where someone had not spoken. For example, Lot's wife. And I tried to just, on my echolocation was silence in a way, right? It wasn't sound. It was, where's the silence? in this ossified story, and let's dig into that, and a lot came from it in the book. And there is a lot. Uh, you know, I didn't know that you were going to bring up Elijah, but I was ready. Um, I want you to do, you know, Casey just has such a good reading voice that he should read his own book. Um, can you do one more 370 for me real quick? Sure. How much are you paying? <laughs> 370. 370, the paragraph under uh, the note from Elijah. Mm. It really was serendipitous that he just brought Elijah up so early. So uh, about a year or so before uh, I started this book, Elijah sent me a thank you note. We had fallen out for some reasons, and uh, prideful young people sort of had a, you know, a cold war of sorts and had reconciled, and he wrote me this thank you note saying that he sort of aspires to be, you know, half the person I am. And this was right around the time I was realizing I had reached my own dead end and trying to figure out which way to go. And so I write about that note, and I say, if I had understood then what I understood by the time he took his life, I would have told him not to do that. Don't aspire to be half the man I am or at least made sure he understood what the whole man looked like, how cracked up it was, how okay it was to be cracked up. I am not God, so will not say it would have changed a thing. All I know is that Elijah was the bravest boy I ever met, 
and he deserved a better world, a better path than the one that he was given, the one that I helped give to him. I drove him, drove them all, to be first, be bold, be perfect, be the greatest. What I did not do was drive them to be whole, to be free. Did not teach them that the best revenge was freedom. Did not know it for myself in time. One of my favorite passages in the book. Another theme that you write about uh, so eloquently in the book is about love and about how you've grown and your understanding of what love is and what it is not. Uh, why did you choose to write about love as intimately as you did in this book? Mm, that's very uh, important. I want to say one thing on that last deal before I, I, I get there. I was uh, saying earlier how uh, beautiful it is that, you know, Two black gay men from America were sent across the Atlantic Ocean to tell Scottish people about books. You know, I thought that was fantastic. And we just celebrated James Baldwin's birthday recently. We just uh, witnessed the transition of Toni Morrison. And um, I know both of us while some people look at us and say, oh, they're these new voices or whatever, we are deeply grounded in all of the people who paid such an enormous price to make it possible for us to write a book or to stand here as free black people, sit here as free black people in Edinburgh and talk about these books without any threat of violence or censure or whatever. And so when I think about that paragraph, I think about that great part in another country by James Baldwin, which if you have not read, don't read my book until you read James Baldwin. Buy it, but don't read it. Because <laughs> he doesn't need the money. I, you know, I got rent to pay. Um, <laughs> so in another country, spoiler alert, uh, the protagonist commits suicide about a uh, hundred and some pages in the book. And he's a poor black boy from Harlem and a deeply religious community that he's part of. And they've got to eulogize him. And that's a very difficult thing because even when I was growing up, if you killed yourself, you were con considered going straight to hell. So the preacher has a very tough job. And he gets up and gives the greatest, most honest eulogy, perhaps the only honest eulogy that I've heard. And he says, I know a lot of people say that a man that takes his own life shouldn't be buried in holy ground. I don't know nothing about that. All I know is all the ground God made is holy. He says, and I'll tell you something else, and don't you forget it. I know a lot of people that took their own lives, and they're walking up and down the streets today. And some of them are preaching the gospel, and some of them are sitting in the seats of the mighty. And if there wasn't so many dead folks walking around, maybe those of us trying to live wouldn't have to suffer so bad. Oh, you don't beat that. You know. <laughs> that was good. That was. God knows. God I knows. said. I said I was wearing my sandals in 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 honor of of, of my uh, forebear Jesus of Nazareth. So, there we are. It uh, is. This, it is this reminder. Sure. I remember when Elijah took his life, and we spoke in. 
One of my friends took their life uh, in college, and I remember just like Elijah sent you a note, she had sent me a note a couple of weeks before she took her life. It was a simple note, and it just said, I remember to write even if you just take notes on life. Mm. And I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget what it meant not that I didn't write. I was so busy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think about all the lessons I wish I had shared. And when I read those passages about Elijah, it reminded me about what it means that we help people like live in the world and not just achieve what we think success is. That's right. That's right. That's right. And part of that is to your point around love. Yeah. He's good. <laughs> Take us there. Um, you know, I was very um, committed to not writing um, another or a sort of a dissertation on what it meant to be an oppressed gay person. You know, um, there is no coming out, qua coming out scene in the book. The first time you experience me experiencing a sexual awakening is me watching the video of D'Angelo. And I did that because the reality is that nobody wakes up in some morning at 12 or 11 or 10, whatever, and walks in the bathroom and looks in the mirror and say, oh my God, I'm a homosexual. I mean, it's never happened in the history of the world. You see somebody, you see something, you experience something, and, and you know, you see. And so what I wanted to do um, was really try to bring worthy language to the beauty and the challenge of loving another boy. And a society that... Uh, is opposed to such an exercise. Can we just take a minute and say God is here? (laughs) Because this is quite a background. Is everybody all right on hearing? Okay. In the back? Can y'all hear in the back? Good. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.